Hey, hey, and welcome to episode 70. As always, you got my gratitude for hitting that little triangle that points to the right to play or download this labor of love. Whether this is your first time or your 70th, you're taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, to give it a listen, so thanks for real. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. This episode is one that's going to carry a hell of a lot of nostalgia for me, and maybe you too. 2022 marks the 40th anniversary of the Steven Spielberg-directed E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the bittersweet tale of a lonely nine-year-old boy named Elliot Taylor, played by Henry Thomas, who encounters and befriends an extraterrestrial left behind on Earth when its mothership saw U.S. government officials and flew off like a bat out of hell, leaving the poor little space goblin with the message, See ya later, sucker! E.T. opened in theaters in June of 1982, and the instant critical praise and positive word of mouth resulted in the little space creature leapfrogging over Atuditu's sorry mechanical ass to dethrone Star Wars as the top-grossing film of all time. But if the idea of a 40-year-old movie has you be like, No! Oh, tone it down there, you aficionado of intergalactic abandonment stories. And just heed the words of wisdom of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. My guest is Caesar, or Seven Seas, of the No One Fifteen Allcast, the very same who came on this show a couple of months ago for a chat about another Spielberg masterpiece, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Our talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around, because there will be the results of the weekly poll, as well as the trivia segment and listener shoutouts. And, of course, this week's trivia question. So hop on your bicycle, grab some Reese's Pieces, and get ready to fly across the view of the moon as Caesar and I bring you to suburban Southern California to the landing site of E.T.'s space vehicle. So this is Seven Seas from the all-cast, No on 15. Caesar, how you doing? I'm good, I'm good, man. Excited to be back and talking about E.T. Super happy about this. A lot of memories. Uh, can't wait to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. No, this was a movie that defined, I think, the childhood of anybody who can call themselves Generation Xa. But E.T. came out in merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a Spaceballs flashback. <laughs> Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Spaceballs, the yogurt. Spaceballs. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's E.T., man. That's E.T. right there. Anything you can think of, it, they had. They even had the finger in a in a cardboard. <laughs> I don't know about that, but they, you could get a finger. <laughs> well, I will say, total disclosure here. When I was eight years old in 1982, I was ET for Halloween. But this was the early 1980s when Halloween costumes were just total plastic, shit. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. and... <laughs> a plastic mask that covered your face only with a rubber band that went around the back of your head. Yes. So the top of your head, the back of your head, the sides of your head, all exposed, just your face was covered. Mm -hmm. And then you have this plastic apron. And instead of looking like E.T.'s body, it's a full bodied picture of E.T. on the apron itself that you're walking around. <laughs> That's those? the word I was looking for, the, the apron. And you would have this mask on the whole time and you could only breathe when you would lift it up and get some air on your face. <laughs> so once you put it back down, <laughs> all oxygen was cut off. <laughs> and I remember the lips of yes. these face masks. They would always cut into your face every time you, every time you spoke. Yeah. Yep, totally, man. A bit more sophisticated since then. 
hopefully. Mm-hmm. And I haven't tried to dress as ET lately, so I don't know what they have now, but hopefully it's <laughs> not the uh, shoddy quality they had back then. Although back then it was probably considered the high-class costume. Right, definitely. I think even now, if it's a hoodie that looks like the character, it's better than what we had. Because <laughs> you could breathe. So. <laughs> Oxygen is good. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I think there was a Simpsons episode that did a parody of not necessarily E.T., but just that kind of Halloween costume. I think Milhouse was wearing one. I forget who he was supposed to be. Was it Alf? I'm not sure, but he's got that, you know, the plastic apron on and tied around his waist. And (laughs) Yeah, E.T.'s. You you mentioned the Simpsons. I I think I remember an episode of Family Guy where they made fun of E.T. as well, where... I think the police are coming over to search the house and Peter's like, run E.T. And you just see him running out of the closet. Ah. <laughs> it's like, e. I got to look for that one on YouTube. I think I missed that one. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> well, if it's a family guy, then it is funny. Definitely. It's an older episode too. It's like early seasons, I think. But I know we're talking about the movie, so I won't, I'll digress and get us back <laughs> on uh topic (laughs) quite all right so et did you see it in the theater when it came out i did so i have trouble remembering exactly when i saw it so because this movie was re-released a couple times after it came out it was so popular that it came out like in 83 it came out in 84 again at the theater and i saw it i either saw it by itself in 82 or as part of a double feature with The Last Starfighter in 84. Because they used to do double oh. features back then. Do you yeah. Know? I don't know if you remember. I do. Sometimes they would, they, would, they would do that. And I think, I almost want to say, I feel like I saw it when I was four years old, going on five, at, as part of a double feature, because uh, we were going to watch The Last Starfighter as well. All I know is, I, I had this in my notes, and because I didn't want to forget, my brothers and sisters hated every second of it when I was there because I couldn't stop crying when E.T. Uh, ended up in the ravine. <laughs> I really thought he was dead. Like, yo, they threw him away like trash and he's dead. And I'm dying in the theater as a kid, like a four-year-old. I'm crying my eyes out, bawling. And my, they, they told my, I never forget them telling my parents that we're never taking him with us to the movies again because of that. <laughs> that's how much et affected me y'all when i was a kid i i bonded with them just like elliot <laughs> i think there are a lot of elements of this film that traumatized a generation if you haven't seen it in a while and if you go back and rewatch it it's a lot darker than than i think yes. most people remember yes it does it has a lot of undertones of being very serious and the score lends to that with a lot of those moments in the movie. Like you get those, those feelings and those vibes of something dark is going on here. Something scary. And, and I mean, looking into like some of the history of the movie kind of makes sense. Right. Like without getting into details about it, because you know, we're going to talk about all that stuff, but I think it makes sense of why sometimes it feels darker because sometimes, well, not sometimes, but, because building up some of the story had dark elements, right? Because uh, it was originally a different story. It was originally envisioned as a 
I don't know if horror really was, was that like sci-fi horror more like an alien kind of so. a tone to it yeah yeah that was yeah. Spielberg's original vision and then he sort of I guess you could say he sort of split off into two because he made mm-hmm. E.T. and Poltergeist around the same time and I think yeah. we talked about this a little bit last time with Close Encounters but E.T. was supposed to for Spielberg represent the suburban dream like mm-hmm. the like the magical you know the wistful and poltergeist was supposed to be the stuff of suburban nightmares mm-hmm. so there was sort of like companion pieces in that sense makes sense yeah and they even have a lot of the well except for the father he's actually around in poltergeist you know what i mean so that part is yeah. uh, different in at <laughs> he's, a, he's a mexico <laughs> <laughs> so i think the father from poltergeist is in spielberg's films the only father who's actually around and is a good father yeah, I know, right? Well, maybe <laughs> Jaws, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, in Pult, uh, in ET, I mean, in ET, it was originally envisioned as sort of an alien invasion story, mm-hmm. where the family was going to be abducted. I think it was that sort of morphed into in Poltergeist, the little girl Carol Ann getting abducted yeah. into the other dimension. So cut his storyline in half and went total horror in one direction and total, like I said, darker than you remember, but still overall more of a family friendly. I don't know. Would you call ET family friendly? I think so. I think it's just funny when you you talk about the contrast of like Poltergeist and ET because they were both done around the same time. It's almost like Spielberg was doing a social experiment. <laughs> like he took three kids. <laughs> I'll put these three kids. And they're gonna meet an alien. I'll put these three kids. They're gonna meet ghosts. Let's see which ones come out. You know, at the end, uh, in a better place. It's funny. Because I I know they say Toby Hooper directed it, but a lot of people really think that Spielberg directed Poltergeist, you know, behind the scenes. But I guess that was part of the stipulations of his contract uh, with Universal when uh, he he signed on to do E.T. with them. Like he couldn't do anything else. I think it kind of makes sense, though, when you think about it, the the elements, especially if something starts off and then it becomes something else like it's hard to break every single part of that story away because there's going to be things that you like about it like definitely starting out in et when elliot goes in the backyard you know after he hears that we know weird noise you know obviously he something is in the shed that 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 setting that shot is it's pretty creepy it is a creepy shot you know it's kind of like a twilight zone kind of a vibe to it yeah yeah definitely and then you, you know, like they had the cornfields behind it, so kind of like what's out there. It just it's it's got that almost close encounters feel in a way too, with uh, the kid that you know goes outside and the mom you know yelling from the top window when we talked about that movie. So it's like a, it's got that creepy eerie vibe uh, when that happens. When I was a kid seeing it, I do remember I completely jumped out of my shoes. <laughs> when, when Elliot's got the flashlight and all of a sudden he, he sees this extraterrestrial screaming and wailing in his face and he screams and turns around and runs in the other direction. I, mean, I don't know. You, you would think that a movie like E.T. would not have a jump scare, but that was a good jump scare. It was. Yeah. It freaked you out. You're like, what? You know, because before that, like this, you just see the silhouette of the creatures in the forest. So you really don't know what they look like. And no one's come face to face with them. So when Elliot does, especially as a kid, you're going to freak out. I think it'll scare you. But then afterwards, uh, when you see the bond and the relationship that ends up growing uh, when they're together, I think it totally becomes like a family movie at that point. 
Yeah, I agree with that definitely because E.T. fulfilled a need, I think. There was just so much that was established before he meets E.T. There was so much established with, with what they were missing or what like what they didn't have. You know, with their father having gone and the mother's very, she's doing her best, but, you know, she's working and she's trying to keep the family together and she's trying to get her life together after being abandoned by the husband. So you have that, you know, just like you did with Close Encounters and just like you do with a lot of Spielberg films, you have this believable family drama set against a backdrop of something that's much more fantastical, much more wistful, much more just something much more magical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It, It is very whimsical, like you said earlier. Uh, I think that's part of the beauty of the movie, that relationship and how everything evolves. And I think as a kid, you build it's it's I don't want to say that's what it is. But when you have a pet as a kid, you get that like kind of relationship. And I think that's kind of what you associate with when you see that relationship between Elliot and E.T. But then it, it grows and becomes something else. And it's. It's just very, it's touching in a way to see that because there's moments when throughout the film, you see that maybe E.T. misses like the companionship that he had with his, you know, his other, I don't know, species, I guess you could say, or his, his people. And I think when you see those moments, they're very touching as well. But also without like going too deep and getting too far into the film, I feel like as an adult now watching this movie, as opposed to when I was a kid, this movie is made extraordinarily special by the score of John Williams. Without, I think without his score in the movie, it would be a completely different movie. Hands down, this is one of John Williams' best. The fact that he was nominated but did not win is just mind-blowing. It's crazy to me. Yeah, it is, man. It's just, I feel like every beat and every sound and part of the score that he puts in the scenes it it just expounds any emotion or any characteristics and uh, part of the plot it just makes it explode and makes it burst and make you feel it on, on the screen that's kind of what happens with the score that's how powerful it is in this movie i think and that's why i think it's like you said it's probably at the top like right there like i know people love his star wars stuff but i feel like this one is just amazing it it just almost is more important and integral to the movie than everything else it's weird but i I feel like that like without it it would be a completely different movie yeah no there are definitely scenes in the movie where you the impact of the scene very much does rely on the impact of the music like, I know that this is farther into the film, so I'm kind of going out of sequence here. But when Michael, the older brother, turns to the mother and finally tells her what's going on, and she sees Elliot and Gertie and E.T. in the bathroom, and Elliot and E.T. are just are just looking completely, I mean, they're done. And yeah. Elliot says, we're sick, I think we're dying. And she freaks out, and she reacts, as I would say any rational parent would. You know, she's the thing in the tub can stay there. I'm getting out with the kids and she runs out and Michael runs out with Gertie and they're all running downstairs. The music in that moment. And then she opens the door and that's when they begin invading the home and quarantining. That that terror. I think that's really if I think about the different pieces of the score to this movie, that scene in particular stands out to me as emotional. Like it hits you right between the eyes. 
It's also what you see on the screen, the sight of E.T. screaming and holding out his arms as they're all being taken away by the mother. And so all of that definitely plays a huge part in it as well. But like you said, I don't think that had it been a scene with no music or had it been another composer, you know, who knows what direction it could have gone in. Yeah, I agree, man. I think like for me, the scene and... I, I I feel like if we we say some of these scenes and not exactly get too deep into the plot, but I feel like the scene where E.T. is just sort of spying on the mom while she's talking to Gertie through the closet, and then you get these subtle little mm. beats coming through, and you feel you just feel like bad, dude, like for him at that moment, you know what I mean? And and that's it's crazy because it's not it's not a human being, it's obviously an extraterrestrial is another creature but it's like a human moment and that's something that i feel like spielberg and john williams conveyed so well throughout the film but that that part in particular always touches me now as i'm older as a kid i was just like oh wow he's just you know kind of curious like what's what's he looking at but as an adult you just feel for him like he misses that bond maybe he maybe he has a mother or had a mother and he sees it and he sees how special it is now you know, so I, I feel like that's very powerful too in there. I think you're onto something with ET and the the potential of you know having a mother of his own because there was a cut scene. I remember I had the storybook when I was a kid. I had the novel oh, and I had man. the storybook. Yeah. And actually I still have the storybook. She <laughs> is it's a cut scene and she's asleep. She's just sleeping in bed and E.T. comes into her room and in a moment of in a moment of tenderness, he leaves a Reese's pieces on her pillow for her oh, and then turns cool. around and walks out. And so there's a picture of her with, you know, the side of her face on the pillow and he's putting the Reese's pieces down on her pillow. And in the novel, he continues to call her in his mind because in the novel, you're privy to E.T.'s inner thoughts. And in the novel, he keeps referring to her. He knows her name is Mary, but he keeps referring to her as a willow creature. His whole species, they were botanists. So I don't know if he just related her to, you know, vegetation. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but he had a. And this is gonna. This is really the, not the right word to use because he has, a, for lack of a better word, a yearning for a connection with her. You know, I, th- I think that a case could be made that he, I mean, he's a he's like a lost child. He's a stranger in a strange yeah. world. God knows how many light years away from home. He sees this mother figure. He sees how she is with her three kids. Maybe that's something that strikes a nerve in him. Yeah, I think so too. But I like you. I feel bad for E.T. I mean, he's just a completely sympathetic character. Yeah. And especially like, again, those those beats and those contrasts of as a kid as versus as an adult or even as a parent, you just see things completely differently now. And this movie, my son, who's only like one and a half, was watching like the part where he appears to be like dying. And he started like, uh, like <laughs> crying at the screen like, <laughs> and i'm thinking yo i feel you man i know exactly what that felt like you know <laughs> so yeah i mean i know i know a ton of, a ton happens for us to get to those points but i think emotion is, is a good word to use in this film that it, it'll it'll put you in touch with those for sure especially as as a parent i think 
you do see it much differently as a parent all these years later. I mean, this movie is 40, this movie is 40 years old. And when it came out, the target audience, of course, was younger kids. I think that it spoke to so many of that of our generation because well, I think everybody always wonders what would happen if I ever do run into an extraterrestrial. What if there really is life out there in space? And are they friendly? Are they not? And I think a lot of kids who might have come from environments that didn't necessarily give them the foundation of love and support that they may have needed, broken homes, that kind of thing. I'm sure that they could relate to a lot of the movie's themes as well. Spielberg at the time and now says that this movie, he wanted to be told from a child's perspective, so much so that even the camera work, he has the camera placed deliberately very low throughout the vast majority of the shots because he wanted the audience to experience it from a kid's perspective. Like, for example, the scene when it was the morning after Halloween, and Elliot was missing because he was in the middle of the woods with E.T. And his mother, Mary, she's talking to the police cop. We only see the police cop from the waist down. We never see his face. And yep. Mary sort of, her head is at the top of the frame. And when you see Elliot, Elliot is pretty much front and center. She closes the refrigerator door and Elliot's just standing there. So mm -hmm. it's like the camera is deliberately placed at the height of a kid. That was the effect he said he was going for. And then getting back to what you, I am going somewhere with this. <laughs> uh, you said about, uh, you know, all these years, you know, 40 years later, 40th anniversary of this, of this classic. Those of us who were, you know, younger kids then, those of us who have kids now, we see it now from a parent perspective. And I think that scenes that didn't have as much of an impact, you know, when you're five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 years old, you look at it now and it's, it's something that, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> tears your heart out. Like <laughs> I used to get so upset. The scene that I mentioned already, when they first tell the mother, I used to get so upset that she got the kids out of there. You know, because as a little kid, my reaction was parents never listen to their kids. They're telling her it's okay. Gertie's repeating it's the man from the moon. Both Elliot and Michael say he's not going to hurt you, mom. No, Gertie and Michael say he's not going to hurt you, mom. So from a kid's perspective, it's why isn't mom believing us? What We thought we could trust her. So you get, I, at least me, I was getting all worked up. Why is she just leaving the poor thing in the bathroom? He's obviously screaming and needs help. From a parent perspective now, yeah, I kind of get it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, exactly. Kids, <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing, so let's just get the hell out of here. So yeah. well, see, you just you approach it from a different angle. I'm not saying that it's still not upsetting, the scene. It's just that you have a better understanding of why Mary reacted the way that she did. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's how it works. Like, what you say makes complete sense. As a kid, you're going to think that. You're going to think they don't believe me but now as an adult you're you're watching that situation and you're like yeah i get it I, I see why she did that like exactly what you said because you're gonna be freaked out you're gonna be like yo i don't know what's going on here uh, i'm gonna have to get my kids and get out of here because who knows if this thing's got germs come some kind of infection my son is getting sick so definitely man that that scene that totally makes sense i was going to mention that like you said, it's the 40th anniversary of the movie, and there's there hasn't been no talk of a sequel or a remake. What do you th what do you think that means? Like, what what do you think that says about it? I know that Spielberg has always been anti sequel. 
He feels that he's told a story he wanted to tell. There's nothing left to say about it. There was a, almost immediately after the movie came out, I know that Melissa Matheson, who co-wrote the screenplay, I know that she and Spielberg together came up with a nine-page treatment for a sequel. Mm -hmm. And the premise was going to be that... It sounds awful. The premise was going to be that Elliot and Michael and Gertie were going to be abducted by extraterrestrials and E.T. was going to come save them. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. There was sort of a kind of sort of not really kind of a mini sequel. Do you remember that commercial mm-hmm. for, uh, what was it, Comcast? Yes. Or? Yeah, I remember that. And he comes back and comes back and yeah. Elliot's now a husband and a father, kids of his own mm-hmm. three, yeah. maybe four years ago. Is that canon? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is like it is almost like expounding upon the story in Close Encounters, right? With a kid. Mm. It's more focused on the kid. So it's, this is that story. And I think I think there's been a lot of attempts to do stuff like that. You know, where a kid meets someone from another planet or some kind of sentience. And there's been some good, you know, attempts at it, some good shots at it. There's some decent films. But I don't think there's, I don't know why there there's nothing like this. And I think, well, I do know why, because, uh, again, it kind of goes back to the people that put this together, um, Spielberg and then, you know, John Williams score. So I think, I think probably because of that aspect, there probably hasn't been as many attempts to do that. I do remember in 1985, three years after the movie came out, there was a sequel novel that was published. Right. Right. And the title was something like the book of the green planet or the book of Mm -hmm. the something along those lines. And I read it. And, you know, it was the same cast of characters. It was E.T. does return to Earth. The idea is that Elliot's now older, so he's lost the ability to connect on as deep of a level with E.T. Like, Mm -hmm. E.T.'s trying to telepathically connect with him again. But Elliot is so caught up with things like his first crush and dating, things like that, that those things consume his thoughts. So E.T. just doesn't... You know, E.T. does not understand why is Elliot so distant. Like, e- Elliot never sees E.T., at least not for the vast majority of the book. Elliot doesn't know that E.T. is sort of stalking him. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, so he's spying on Elliot. He's spying on Gertie and her mother at the laundromat. I remember there was a scene where that was going on. He was just trying to reconnect with these old friends of his without them knowing that he was there. They just weren't receptive to it. Mm-hmm. I understand that they probably wanted to take the cat, you know, they wanted the characters to develop and to grow, but in the same respect, it just didn't have, it just didn't have the same magical quality, which is probably why Spielberg says no, no sequel. So yeah. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. If it weren't Spielberg who made E.T., if it were a director who badly needed a hit, then chances are we would have gotten a sequel. Yeah, no, I agree. That's actually going to be one of my questions to you. Like, when do you think that bond happened or how did it happen between E.T. and Elliot? Honestly, I think that the the connection really began to form once E.T. knew that he was safe with Elliot, once he knew that he could be trusted, that Elliot could be trusted Mm -hmm. and vice versa. 
and Elliot is happily showing the day that he fakes being sick and he stays home from school and here he is showing him all of his Star Wars toys and E.T. is looking at him with all of this, you know, bewilderment, but also this sense of wonder. Then Gertie comes home and Michael comes home and then the three of them, that famous shot of the three of them in Elliot's closet just staring at him and they're bathed in that orange glow. When Elliot and E.T. lock eyes at that moment, I think that's when it began to happen because Elliot goes back to school the next day and that's the scene when, when he's supposed to be dissecting the frog and instead he ends up in lip lock with this girl. The young Erica Liniac, yeah. And that's probably a scene that would be choreographed a bit differently these days. Here yes. he is grabbing this girl and pulling her towards him and forcing his lips on her. It's, uh... Well, it's kind of cool though too because they do that shot of like the quiet man, right? That That's what E.T. is watching and that's what Elliot is feeling and yeah it's kind of like they do that side by side comparison of that old film but like you said also earlier that's also evident that they're showing you the kid's point of view in that scene as well because when they take Elliot from the classroom you never see the top of the teacher you just see her from like the waist down you know taking him out of the room so it's like yeah they're they're continuing that throughout the film which is like another thing I was going to mention is like nowadays i don't think that would fly like the whole uh yeah you get to kill an animal in class <laughs> pretty much <laughs> uh did you dissect a frog at all when you were in high school in class i did but they were already like dead they were like frozen like de- yeah. <laughs> frogs. they were like i like, oh, get to chloroform <laughs> and kill their asses <laughs> that, I, yeah, we, we dissected frogs and yeah it's like they bought like frog corpses in bulk from costco or something i, I certainly yeah we <laughs> we didn't kill ourselves <laughs> okay kids today take out all our you young serial and... <laughs> killers get your practice in <laughs> shred the shit out of them oh my god yeah dude i, I don't know if that's like a california thing because they're supposed to be in california so they're more uh yeah i don't know anti-frog i don't know they're a nuisance anyway uh they're taking over the ecosystem (laughs) yeah we need you guys to take these out uh but yeah no that's something i noticed too i I thought right away i was like yeah this wouldn't fly nowadays speaking of only seeing the teacher from the waist down even before elliot lets all the frogs out when the teacher's walking up and down the aisles and he's lecturing Mm -hmm. elliot's drawing the picture of et you know all you see is just you see his ass and that's it (laughs) he's like walking up and down but uh then the teacher grabs him by the arm and he's like physically removing him from the room and yanking him down the sidewalk to the principal's office. Are you aware of the uh, cut scene there? Yes. One of my fun facts. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then I'll stop. <laughs> no, because I'm fine. sure there are details about it that you know that I don't. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a couple of scenes that were cut, obviously, I think. And I think in, in a good fashion they were because they, they might have taken away a little bit from the overall film if they you know people knew because then they would have just been going for that reason instead of you know trying to pay attention to the story by oh some so-and-so is in this we gotta check it out the whole sequence when the house goes into quarantine as a kid i never understood it let me let me backtrack here i did not understand really the connection between elliot and et I mean, I saw, you know, through the way that they edited it, I got it that they were supposed to feel each other's feelings, but I didn't understand how. Yeah. I think I was looking for an explanation. Like I wanted it spelled mm-hmm. out for me in my squirrely yeah, like, little 
little kid he way. I was like, him or something, why? Or... But how? There's got to be a reason why they, you know, E.T. is getting drunk and then Elliot belches in class. There's got to be a reason why, you know, he's watching this, you know, The Quiet Man, this movie, and Elliot then does the same thing with the girl. And because the movie never comes out and says why these things are happening, it's just all implied and suggested. I think the closest they come to an explanation is when the house is in quarantine, one of the government officials is talking with the older brother, Michael, and he says to Michael, so you're telling me that your brother Elliot thinks his thoughts? And Michael says, no, Elliot feels his feelings. That's the closest that we get to an explanation. Yeah. That whole part, I think that we don't get as kids of how they build like the symbiotic relationship and they're able to feel each other's feelings and their thoughts and what one does affects the other. I think that that is the magic, right? Between E.T. and Elliot because of the bond that they, they share with each other and how innocent it is and how genuine it is. I think that's what still holds up. And I think that that part is what us as adults understand. As kids, like you said, we'll be trying to figure it out. Like, why, how, why is this happening? You know what I mean? And, yeah. But it's, which, is, which is kind of funny because it's almost a contradiction of us as kids, as, as people, because as kids, we believe in magic. We believe there's Santa Claus. We believe all these things, right? But when it comes to an alien and a kid <laughs> feeling each other's feelings and thoughts, we're like, how the hell does that work? <laughs> it's so funny, but it's true, man. And I think that, but it's just like the magic in the movie, you know, that it's very genuine between them, the innocence between them. Like there's no malicious intent from Elliot at all and what he's trying to show E.T. And 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 it's very uh, poignant later on in the film when, man, I don't know if they ever actually say the character's name of the the, the one that's played by Peter Coyote. He plays Keys. Oh, Keys. Yeah. yeah I don't know if they him. say his name in the movie. Yeah, they just show his keys. So (laughs) that's why they call him keys. But he says, I'm glad he met you first. It's like very powerful in a way, too, when you think about it, because it's like you could have met anyone and they could have been a jerk or they could have been someone that's so bad. But he met Elliot. Could have been Greg. Could have been Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Michael's friend, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) He would have been in a bad situation. (laughs) Probably would have been doing coke and looking at nudie mags. (laughs) <laughs> smoking the stogies <laughs> smoking at a bar you know it's so bad yeah greg's the one that threw the water on the mogwais and gremlins right now i'm just kidding but oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the kind of person greg is so. oh my god even when the house is in quarantine and everyone in the neighborhood is watching and gawking greg's sitting there on his bike and he just goes "Ooh, they're gonna die and it's like what the hell is wrong with you he's <laughs> some kind of a sociopath yeah man C. Thomas yeah. Howell, too, is one of the, one of the kids. C. On Thomas the Howell. Yeah, and, and C. Thomas Howell is the one who turns to him and says, shut up, Greg. But then the other one gets all dramatic, and he says, something is happening. Something is definitely happening. And it's like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. There's this whole trash bag over the house, and the whole government is descending on the neighborhood. I'd say something's happening. <laughs> That's one of the things as a kid. I thought I always wanted to go through that tunnel. I just thought it looked like fun. But I know it was a bad situation. You know, it's just like a long plastic tunnel leading up to the house. And I'm like, oh, I think that'd be fun to go down like in a slide or something. Like if I was if I was sledding, I could sled down that that tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Sort of an early version of what the water tunnel in the Goonies eventually became. Or right. all those tunnels, right. actually. Yeah. Did you know 
I don't know. This is an interesting fact. I'm just going to blurt it out. But did you know how Spielberg got the idea for that? Put it around the house? Like the, the quarantine? The, the quarantine tubes and everything? No. Yeah. I guess it, it happened to him when he was coming back from LAX. It was like a long flight. It was like a long delay. And when he got there, they were like remodeling and redoing a part of the airport. And it looked like that. Like there were, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of plastics and a lot of stuff covering the area where they were modeling and everything. So it just kind of clicked in his head to do that huh. with the house, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. It's like, wow, just sitting there because of the delay and you get an idea to put in a movie because you see it, you actually see it in a place. You know, it's so crazy how one thing can lead to another. If he weren't, if his flight had not been delayed, mm-hmm. yeah. you, you think about like how indelible these images are to so many moviegoers and if that scene didn't exist as it was, I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, it's like, it's crazy when you think it's just, like you said, if there wasn't a delay, then who knows what, what he would have done there. But it's very memorable too, uh, that just the whole, the whole house gets covered. Every aspect of the house. And then when you see inside the house, you almost feel like it's not even the same place. You feel like it's like a medical research facility or something. Because you, you had these like plastic panels and you no know, zipper doors and everything separated. So. It, it completely changes defibrillators in the pantry i mean this was not the same and the the movie was shot in chronological order because yes. spielberg wanted to have the kids go on this emotional journey from point a to point b to point c etc so when the scene when it came time to shoot the scenes when the house went into quarantine and especially when it came time to shoot the scene where et dies i remember that d wallace who played the mother, who played Mary, she got really concerned for Drew Barrymore. Oh, man. She got really concerned how Drew Barrymore <laughs> would react emotionally filming these scenes because at that point, you know, they'd already filmed so much of the movie and, yeah. you know, all, all of the moments that, you know, they had already shared together, E.T. and the kids. And D. Wallace appeared on the Drew Barrymore show recently and they were reminiscing about E.T. and talking about the 40th anniversary. And, you know, they were all teary and hugging each other and the whole thing. And so they got to talking. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. I knew it was all acting. I was fine when, you know, when, when it came time to shoot E.T.'s death scene, she said. And D. Wallace looked at her and <laughs> called her out on it and said, uh, Drew Barrymore, who the <laughs> hell do you think you're kidding? <laughs> And you know something, D. Wallace was right because one of the behind the scenes featurettes in the, at least the edition of the DVD that I have, you have footage of after they called cut and Drew Barrymore still, she's still crying and (laughs) crying. Spielberg goes up to her and he's giving her a hug and Spielberg turns to the camera and he says, look at her. This is a real actress. And he's dead. He's dead. It's like, and then here she is on on her talk show saying, oh yeah, no, I had it together. Dude, I have all these notes, right? And that's my note number six. I said, uh, Drew Barrymore crying has to be one of the saddest cries ever caught on film when E.T. dies. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, the Her shot that gets me like... when she jumps after click and then E.T.'s body jerks upward with the paddle. Drew Barrymore, she sort of lifts up her head with him like a small mm-hmm. jerk upwards. And then she just, you know, the sobbing begins that that is gutting. Yeah, I just recently found out the chronological thing, too. So that thing, that's crazy to me because it, it it just makes the moment between Elliot and E.T., you know, even more powerful at the end because it's probably very genuine. And that's why it's so good, man. When they're all saying goodbye to him one at a time. 
<laughs> I know I need to put on my big boy pants, but I can't. <laughs> I just cannot do it. It's so tough, dude. Yeah, so hard. <laughs> and then, yeah, when you think about it, you're like, wow, this this really happened in a way to them. Even more special, you know, thinking about it that way. Drew Barrymore has said that out of all the films she's done and the TV movies, you know, her entire career, her ups, her downs, she said the one movie that is her favorite out of all the ones that she's done is this one. And Henry Thomas, he he found that he didn't like fame really all that much. So he sort of became a hermit at the age of 11. He was afraid to leave his house. He didn't want to be hounded by paparazzi or, you know, some crazy fans or anything. So he actually did a lot of films in the 80s after E.T., but he was the go-to actor, the, the go-to child actor for fantasy sci-fi films where a kid, right. you know, has some kind of a some kind of an emotional journey, you know, cloak and dagger. Yeah, I know he 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 did disappear for a while, and then he came back. I think in the like late nineties, early two thousands, and he started doing stuff. Yeah, like it's that. like no one knew where he had gone, and all of a sudden, bang, he's in Legends of the Fall. It's like, oh, I remember you. He played Norman Bates too in one of the psycho psycho sequels, the the prequel one. He was in Suicide Kings, which I always remember. Mm, that's right. Walken. That was like the first time I had seen him in a while, and I was like, wow, this is Henry Tom. This is a kid from ET, man. And I know that he had tried out for a role in the 1987 comedy Summer School with Mac Hammond and Kirstie Alley. And Mm -hmm. he tried out for one of the role, you know, one of the one of the student roles didn't get it, though. Uh, The whole kid actor thing's a whole nother. It's a whole nother thing to, you know, you could delve into that, like how many um, kid actors went through difficulties after adjusting as adults and trying to get different roles you know i would imagine it's it's difficult because people especially in hollywood probably only see you a certain way like you said he was a go-to kid you know to do like sci-fi and fantasy and stuff after that for a while so some child actors just have it naturally you know drew barrymore just naturally had that kind of a precociousness about her Henry Thomas mm-hmm. just had this natural, this brooding nature, which I think was good for, at the beginning, you know, Elliot's not a kid who's really all that happy at the beginning of the movie. You know, his father's just left. His older brother and his older brother's friends, you know, they're not letting him play the game, the Dungeons and Dragons with them. And, you know, he, hey, can I play now? Can I play now? And they're all mocking him. And, so, you know, he's, he's kind of a, a loner, a misfit. So yeah. I think having E.T. around just sort of, it, it fills that hole. It filled that that need. Yeah, I think so too. Um, the other thing I was going to mention was the 80s kid trope of doing anything you want and your parents having no idea what's going on is alive and well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were definitely moments of suspension of disbelief that I picked up on even at the tender age of eight years old. When he's faking being sick <laughs> and he's holding the thermometer up to the lamp, you know, to raise the t- to raise his temperature, his mother is right there, <laughs> right there, folding <laughs> a blanket, and she doesn't notice. Well, just ET coming down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on, man, that's not Gertie. <laughs> hey, like, we, we've been, <laughs> we've had someone living in the house all this time, but you don't know. It's like, okay, what kind of mother are you that you think that this very wide sheet is your petite little girl? <laughs> I'm like, poor E.T., how could you see out those things, man? And I was like, those holes are so small in the damn sheet. 
<laughs> oh my god. I mean, I've seen Dee Wallace in a lot of stuff. I've seen her in horror movies yeah, like The no, Howling and The great. Rob Zombie Halloween and Cujo. Popcorn and Cujo yeah. and movies like that. So I'm not saying anything against her as an actress. I think just as written, I guess I would call it sort of a magical realism about it. You have believable mm-hmm. family drama. You have this mystical sense of Wanda. And yeah. there's always going to be, oh, give me a break yeah. kind of moments. Well, now as an adult, it's like, okay, uh, Drew Barrymore is out here hanging out by the fence by herself in California, where there's probably a ton of creeps uh, back then, just waiting, just waiting to get kidnapped (laughs) as a diversion to get E.T. out of the house. So I was like, wow, that was really bad. But yeah, like you said, it's just part of the story. And you kind of, you know, take take the good with the bad. It's just those things. They're they're just a trope, I think, of the 80s. Like you, you, the parent never, even, even now, and we talked about this on my show when we were, we were talking about Flight of the Navigator, even now, like Stranger Things, they keep that trope alive in there as well. Like mm. it's so popular with people and it's set in the eighties and they, they totally, you know, are always doing what they want and the parents never know. So it's just kind of a, they kept that trope going, man. And that was a good episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> on Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you, okay, do you think, and I know that this is just, they, they say it's a nod to each other all the time, but do you think Star Wars is set in the same universe as E.T.? You know something, Elliot has the action figures, so Padme says no, because in the world of E.T., in that universe, Star Wars is a movie, Elliot has the toys, but that moment, man, when he sees Yoda... <laughs> exactly yeah i mean yeah from a logical standpoint you know it's just uh and it's an inside joke it's a tip of the hat to george lucas but in the context of the movie in elliot's and et's world it's so if et recognizes yoda does that mean that et comes from dagobah does that mean that Mm. i don't know i mean i suppose that there are action figures of real life people around right now but we all you know little bobbleheads of uh of famous people I don't know. I agree. Yeah, no, I'm with <laughs> you too. I, I I think it's you could totally say that. I think you could totally say that it's the tip of the hat. You know, obviously because they're best friends. You know, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and you know, I think even in the Phantom Menace, he put ET. You know, aliens that look like ET in there uh, when they're in like the Galactic Senate and like they're showing this wider view of all mm. these aliens. And there's one where you see like some, you know, aliens that look like E.T. sitting in like in a galactic seat. So it almost makes you think, OK, so this is just like a nod and they're doing this to fans on purpose. Like they want us to think like, oh, maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Or it is just genuinely that like. It is, I guess, far fetched to think, you know, Elliot knows of Boba Fett and you know the other action figures that he has as real people and that's why there's someone dressed as Yoda because he's a real hero to the galaxy and even on earth they know who Yoda is so that's kind of far-fetched to think that way but like you said in the context of the film when E.T. sees Yoda it's like yo I know this dude he can help me get home <laughs> well I, I can you know say so we can extend this too because in Raiders of the Lost Act when Sala and Indy when they're in the well of the souls and they pick up the uh the Ark of the Covenant 
you know, you can see Achiritu and C-3PO sort of etched in with the hieroglyphics. That's right. So does that mean that that Indiana Jones is in this universe as well? And I can add to that even more, the never-ending story. Mm-hmm. The Neverending Story, you have E.T. and I think it's R2-D2. Maybe it's another Star Wars character. I think it's R2-D2. In The Neverending Story at the beginning, when they are talking about how the Empress is very ill and cannot save Fantasia, and you have all these creatures just gathered around listening in shock. Oh, my God. And oh, no. You see them in that room, too. So does The Neverending Story... Are they in there in the in the ivory tower? In the, yeah. uh, the At the beginning, yeah. Okay. You're right. Yeah, I remember that. So this is one expanded universe. If they're all, if they're all oh connected somehow. Yeah. No, that's a good one, man. But yeah, it's something interesting to think about, especially you know, listeners. If you've never, you know, seen ET, you'll you'll see some little nods in there. And if you have not seen ET, get on it. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> For real, seriously. So I think that we both came prepared with some behind the scenes fun facts. And I know that I came this close to encroaching on yours, one of yours. So <laughs> I will let you go first. Okay. So that was one. Uh, yeah. We mentioned earlier that the scene when Elliot gets in trouble and he gets taken to the principal's office. Obviously, you know who the principal was, right? Played by. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford. There you go. And I think this is why I think it got cut because in the scene, Harrison Ford, uh, the principal, goes on to talk about how he knows all the young people are just out there doing drugs and getting high. (laughs) (laughs) If you watch the scene, (laughs) Spielberg's like, nah, man, you can't be talking about this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that's one of the ones that I found. I got a couple other ones, but uh, I'll defer to you for the next one. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so one that I have is this. The film's sound designer overheard a woman in a camera store and knew that this woman's voice had just the right pitch that she was looking for. The woman in the camera store, her name was Pat Walsh. She was a housewife from California, and she is said to be a smoker of up to two packs of cigarettes a day, giving her voice the raspy tone that E.T. has. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Smoke two packs of Dorals a day. Shout out to Scott. <laughs> on an episode recently we're just dying i don't know why i said that but yeah <laughs> definitely you can tell when you think about that aspect of the voice and i know a ton of different stuff they say went into the voice and i think she only got paid like 380 bucks for it or something like that yeah it was like uh, a pittance the voice yeah i also heard like they got like sounds of the sound designer's sick wife like when she was breathing while she was asleep and they snuck that in there too. So they got a bunch of different weird sounds for E.T. Kind of hear them throughout the film. But the voice, like you said, yeah, is that Pat Walsh? Pat Walsh. Totally sounds like a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have another one? Yeah. So fun fact, Carlo Rambaldi, who designed E.T., also designed mechanical effects for other famous aliens. Do you know some of the other ones? Hmm. Would Starman be one of them? No. No. Aliens? Yeah. Uh, he did. Oh, yeah? He did. 
he did do the xenomorph uh, mechanical effects from Alien. And he also did the visitor effects for Close Encounters. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And one that I have here is when Drew Barrymore, years later, when she was producing and starring in Charlie's Angels in the 2000s, she wanted to pay homage to E.T. So there is a scene in Charlie's Angels that's filmed at the same Los Angeles house that was the Taylor family home in E.T. It's one of those blink and you'll miss it moments. There's an E.T. movie poster on the wall in the background. Nice. That's cool, man. I got one more fun fact. Like uh, Frank said that Melissa Matheson and Spielberg wrote a sequel treatment for E.T. Uh, where the kids are getting abducted by evil mutated race of ETs. ET would eventually save them and take them back to Earth. Do you know the title uh, for the sequel is going to be? Because I think it's hilarious. Oh, God. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm bracing uh, myself here. <laughs> nocturnal fears. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay, that either sounds like a really cheap horror movie or a really bad porno. One of the two. I, <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> Nocturnal uh, fears. thought that one might make you laugh. They said it would rob the first film of its virginity. Hmm, you think? <laughs> well, did you know what E.T.'s... They were going to give E.T. a name, his real name, in, in this uh, supposed sequel. Do you know what his name would have been? Uh, is it the... Uh... Shit, I don't want to. Is this the Zrek one or something like that with the Z? Zrek, Z R E K, okay. yeah. Yeah, I heard that recently and I was like, what? That was going to be Ooh. like the big reveal of his true name. And I was like, no, no, no. He's ET. We're good. Yeah. He's like, I am always here, Zrek. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> it's like, Zrek, I love you. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Well, that was not officially one of the trivia questions that I had for you, but I do have some that, you know, that, that, I'm, that I'm sure you'll get, but I'll defer to you first. Okay. What candy was going to be used instead of Reese's? M&M's. That's right. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And to this day, I am sure that the M&M Corporation is kicking itself for losing yes. out on that product placement deal. That would have been one financial windfall. Yeah, it was all because they couldn't see the script. They, they said no. They wanted to see the script first, right? And sales of Reese's Pieces shot up by like 300% in the first two weeks of the film's release yeah. alone. It's like you can't correlate one without the other. It's like E.T., Reese's Pieces, easy. To this day. To this day, yeah. if I'm in the supermarket and there's the candy section at the register, you see the Reese's Pieces and it's like you feel like your fingertip is about to go all red and you just want to reach out <laughs> and, <laughs> and grab those things. Nice. All right. Okay. Well, I got one here. Who is the first character in the film E.T. speaks to? And when he does, what is the very first thing that E.T. says? He speaks to Gertie first. Yes. And oh man, I can't remember what he says. Oh, it's killing me. Yeah, I give up. Well, I can give you a hint. She's watching Sesame Street. 
Is it the oh man, I don't remember I remember the Sesame Street. Is it Big Bird? Who's on that? It was Big Bird, yep. And he was going through this lesson of how to pronounce a few words and they all begin with the same letter. Oh uh, yeah, I can't remember the word, man. B. B. Sort of pops his head up from behind the television set. That's and right. He's, yeah. And he's repeating B. And she says, You said B. Good. And he goes, Be good. <laughs> it's like, Listen, you little bitch, you be good. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, you got me with that one. Keys and ET, played by Peter Coyote, originally auditioned for a different part in a different movie that's very popular, directed by Steve Spielberg. I think he auditioned for Indiana Jones, didn't he? Yes. Got it. He did. Okay. He auditioned, yeah, for the role of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't see Tom Selleck either, and he was the first choice. Oh, man. I know. That mustache. Just can't get past it. No, no. I never could. (laughs) Okay. So what is the bedtime story that Mary is reading to Gertie when Elliot cuts his finger and E.T. heals it? Peter Pan? You got it. Yes. And then when she finishes, Gertie, ouch, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then when she finishes, Gertie says, can you read it again? And Mary sighs. (sighs) And she goes back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think every parent can relate to a moment like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Again. Yep. All right. Do you know who did the first voice for E.T.? I know that there was always talk of Deborah Winger having supplied the voice, and then there was some debate about that, but I don't know of any other famous voice now. You got me. Uh, it was Spielberg himself. So, really? Yeah, he did all the acting voice parts on set. So he would do all the uh-huh. ET phone home to help the child actors. He would he would do the ET speaking parts. Later on, yeah, they dubbed it in, and like you said, they added Pat Walsh. And then the last one that I have is this: we talked already about how the film makes all these references to Star Wars. How does the film give a tip of the hat to Jaws? In what scene is there a reference to shocks? Oh, man. It's not the scene where they're all around the table, right? With the friends? Mm, well, it's not the one that I had in mind. Is, do they reference them in that scene? No, I don't think so. I'm trying to I remember. think the closest we get to sea life is when they send Elliot to out to get the pizza and Greg right. calls out everything but the little fishies. Oh, that's, yeah. See, okay. But that's not the one yeah. that I had in mind, though. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Go ahead. So Sorry. I was gonna give I was gonna give you credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Not the anchovies, yeah. That's no, uh, that's what I was thinking. But I was like, no, it can't be that one. I can't remember the other one. It's when Elliot is home, quote unquote, sick, and he's showing ET his Star Wars action figures and all of his toys, and he's showing him his goldfish inside the goldfish bowl. And he says, oh, and he does shark. exactly. Yeah. He puts the fish food into the goldfish bowl and he says the fish eat the fish food and the shark eats the fish. And then he shoves this little plastic, like a, I don't know if it's like a Pez dispenser on a stick, but he shoves it into the water and he says, but nobody eats the shark. 
Dude, I totally missed that. Oh my god. I know what you're talking about too. Was there anything else about the film that is a fond memory or do you think um, we've pretty much covered it or for the most part you will see this this differently as a parent and as an adult as as opposed to as a kid. I think kids will still find it magical if they watch it. I think it still holds up, man. After all these years, you know, 40 years later, it still holds up as a good story about friendship and about trusting the unknown sometimes just the the relationship you see built throughout the story it is sad at the end you know like you said it, it, it mm-hmm. is sad there's no way it won't be sad that's part of the magic and it, it's almost like a growing moment a moment that as kids to adults we we all have to go through and the way they do it it's, it's the lack lack of a better word like you say is just you know it's a sweet moment at the end definitely worth seeing definitely something you should share with people that you care about that's what i think i think the film has a lot of rewatchability value in it you can revisit it as many times as you want to and there's always going to be some moment whether it's a john williams music cue or whether it's a little subtle bit of acting on drew paramore's pad any of them there's always something that's gonna gonna reach you on a visceral level yeah man like I said earlier, it's just the innocence and it's it's genuine innocence. Again, back to what Keith says, where he just says, you know, I'm glad I met you. I'm glad he met you first. It's uh, like a, the best part of humanity in a way, you know, is what, what he's showing you. I guess you could say that the movie for adults is sort of an eye opener as to how, despite what we say when we're younger, it is very easy to fall into to varying degrees, I guess, depending on the person, a sense of a certain degree of cynicism. Mm. You've used this word now a number of times, and I wanted to comment on it, the word that you use, genuine. Elliot's feelings for E.T., it's just so genuine, it's so pure, it's so unfiltered in the best yep. possible sense of the word. And you, know, you think to yourself, my God, have I really become that much of a crotchety old son of a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that the movie it still is. inspires is, a tear or two, it's reassuring that, oh, okay, maybe there is still something inside of me that beats. Yeah. It's also a reminder of how special our children are. And just us mm. as kids or you know, kids themselves, you know, it's just the innocence and how real they are. And I think that's probably why Spielberg enjoys working with them so much because he knows what he'll get out of them is probably more real than what he'll get out of a grizzled actor because they have to go search for that feeling rather to just showing it as a reaction of who they are at that moment. And I think that's what makes it special, man. That, Like you said, when finding out that everything was shot chronologically, that, that just makes me even more special. Well, it really does give the actors the full experience the way that their characters would have experienced it. You know, if they filmed the final goodbye scene and then the next day filmed the scene when he's first feeding the Reese's Pieces to him. I think that for some unseasoned child actors, that could have been jarring. Yeah. I think it brought out the best in them as actors. I mean, in the case of Robert McNaughton, the best he could at least but uh <laughs> with all due respect to him you know i mean i'm not the one who was in one of the most popular movies of all time he was but compared no, to the yeah. other two i would call him the weakest link yeah i agree and maybe that was on purpose man <laughs> well this has been great to go on this 40 years look back it's one of those movies that comes along once in a generation and it helps to define that generation and i totally stole that line from carrie fisher 
plagiarism or no, I want to thank you again for making the time to to be here to record this, to to go on this retrospective with me. So thank you. No, definitely, man. And thank you for having me back on. And it was a blast to be able to talk about one of the first movies, if not the first movie I ever saw at the theater. So definitely a lot of memories for me. It's still special, man. All these years later, it's, it's still a special movie. So I couldn't recommend it enough for people. And uh, being able to share this time with you uh, talking about it is, you know, been awesome. So I appreciate it. Same here. Same here. Thank you. And before I forget, I definitely want to give you the chance to tell us a little bit about your show, The All Cast, how people, if they want to get in touch with you, where they can find you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the you know, 15 All Cast. We even have a TikTok that we're messing around with with the same uh, at the you know, 15 All Cast. And uh, you can email me at tno15allcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or you want to complain about the show <laughs> uh, you want to complain about my co-host or me whatever it be we do movies from the 80s 90s and we do some contemporary stuff here and there uh, we do our show in series so every month we have a different series and yeah in october it's going to be horror month so we have the night of series and uh, yours truly frank is going to be on one of the episodes so can't wait can't wait uh, for people to hear those it'll be a good time that was a lot of fun to record. I'm looking forward to hearing that one. Yeah. I think you just did an episode on the Goonies, was it? Yes. yes. Yeah. And that Lost was your most recent? Came out today. No, no, no. The Lost Boys just came out today. That's what it was. Right, right, right. Yeah. The Goonies was two episodes ago. <laughs> so, yeah. Am I, I don't know. I hope I got that right. So definitely check out the No One Fifteen All cast with seven C's and great Scott. Yes. Shout out to Scott and <laughs> hey, great talking to you. Looking forward to having you on the show again sometime soon. Thank you, man. Yeah, whenever you want me, Frank, hit me up. You can bet on it. That was my conversation with Caesar. Be sure to give his show a listen. I want to thank him once more, and here's to more collaborations. And now it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. The question for this episode, number 70. Asked you, if you were E.T., would you want to follow M&M's, Reese's Pieces, Skittles, or Cookies into Elliot's house? From the Facebook group Silver Screeners, 38% went for the M&M's, while Reese's Pieces came out on top with 54% of the votes. The Cookies made a decent showing at 8%, but the Reese's take it. And my sister Kim commented that she's all about Reese's everything, while Joe M., a.k.a. my Uncle Joe, says, No way, Skittles. I think I struck a nerve in my kinsfolk with that one. But on Twitter, the cookies laid an egg with no votes, while 14% went for Skittles, 29 for M&M's, and once again, Reese's dominates with 57%. And on Instagram, AshLV22 was kind enough to throw a little love at the cookies with her vote, but in aggregate, it's Reese's Pieces all the way. Big thanks to all voters. As I say every time, these polls are silly fun, all geared towards generating interest in each upcoming episode. So thank you for taking part in it. And don't forget to keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. One last thing before we close out, the listener trivia segment. 
In each episode, there is a different trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the cast and crew involved. You're all invited to take part in it at any time you like. Just know that I err in the side of caution, so I only announce first names and last initials to avoid the possibility of making anybody uncomfortable. But if you tell me otherwise, then full names it is. You'll get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And don't worry about timing either. It does not matter what episode you're listening to, however recent, however far back. Answer any trivia question from any show at any time. You will get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator of anything from music to podcasts, websites, YouTube shows, let me know. I'm always happy to give you a no-strings-attached plug because, as I say each time, people help people. That's that. So last time we celebrated the arrival of Noir Vemba with a look at the film noir genre and Double Indemnity and Sorry Wrong Number. And the question was, the film noir genre had its time in the spotlight during the immediate and post-World War II years, but its characteristics and tropes have resurfaced a few times over the decades since. Notably, in what 1997 Los Angeles-set noirish thriller directed and co-written by Curtis Hansen, based on the novel by James Alroy, starring Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, Danny DeVito, James Cromwell, and Kim Basinger in the role that got her the Best Supporting Actress Oscar? And the answer is... L.A. Confidential! A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting is on its way to the following, in no particular order. My buddy Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast, who also says that L.A. Confidential should have gotten the Best Picture Oscar over Titanic. You know when you put it that way? You have to wonder why the Academy went with an iceberg over a Veronica Lake lookalike? Joining Chris in the winner's circle is, of course, the Silver Screen's trivia legend herself, Mary C. Thanks, as always, Mary, for playing. And completing the trivia winner trilogy is DJ Nick of the Gold Standard Oscars podcast. Like Chris, DJ Nick and his co-hosts, Rachel and Zan, have been guests on this show before, so definitely check out the archives. They're people you don't want to miss. And there's a new listener who answered a previous trivia question, from episode 67, the one on the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu. That question asked, Who played opposite Gary Oldman in Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film, Bram Stoker's Dracula? And it was indeed the man himself, Mr. Keanu Reeves. So thanks to Andrea C. for playing. A big thank you to everyone, as you are all sincerely appreciated. Whether or not you're a podcaster yourself doesn't matter. You keep this trivia segment alive and well. Keep your eyes open for those memes. And to anyone else kind enough to be listening, don't think twice about joining in. You got nothing to lose and a shout-out and a cool meme to gain, so why not get on it? And go ahead and begin with this episode's question. Here it is. 1977 Star Wars became the top-grossing film of all time until E.T. came along in 1982. What Spielberg film knocked E.T. off that pedestal to claim that crown for itself? in 1993. It stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments or anything from today's episode or any episode, just hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 70 to a close. As I say at the conclusion of every episode, big thank you once again for listening. 
Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please feel free to give Silva Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the show's visibility on these platforms, which only means that more people can find it. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good autumn weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of E.T.'s spaceship captain blasting off into the stratosphere, but then suddenly realizing that he left one of his own behind to survive on nothing but Reese's Pieces candy and beer. Dang, nabbit!